G'day, mate. 40 here, just uh, resetting the stream. Didn't get it quite right on my last uh, configuration. Right, this is journalist Helen Lewis, center-left, talking to a couple of other people who are center-left, Chris Cavador, Matt Brown, a couple of academics and psychologists who host a show called Decoding the Gurus. That's my, my kind of issue. Yeah, I think that's the thing. When you're a, a sole trader rather than part of an institution, then, you know, and I think David Fuller says this pretty explicitly, right? All the incentives are, you know, he said, I could have grown my channel by just platforming anti-woke people. You have to make a conscious, economically wounding decision to yourself over and over and over again to do good, responsible journalism. And that's some, um, I think that's really tough. I mean, I had a conversation with the BBC because I said, like, I just want you to be fully aware in advance that the people I'm going to be covering are very likely to complain about the series because to them, all the incentives align with doing it, right? Like I've been terribly traduced by the mainstream media is by their, for their audiences an incredibly appealing narrative. I would doubt that, you know, we're going to make this as legally and ethically sound as we can, that they will have grounds for an official law or even a legal complaint. But nonetheless, there are lots of people for whom making a huge fuss on social media is nothing but upside for them. And you have to be aware of that when you're doing journalism in this environment. And I also get kind of slightly annoyed. You know, the Elon fanboys are a really good example about this. The sheer level of credulousness that if... So the example about the, the, histo the stalker, the story about the stalker, right, and how the jet was putting his kid in danger is a really good example. When the Washington Post goes and does this, involving Bellingcat, right, and Bellingcat taking time off the Ukraine war to look into this, geolocates where his car was, and it's, you know, it's a day after his plane last flew and se several miles away. So he's just made that up as far as we can see, that the jet had anything to do with that incident. But people who will spend all their time saying the mainstream media are lying to you seem to be completely unaware of the idea that Elon Musk too, it's possible, may lie to you. Yeah, yeah. That like inconsistency of charity is, I mean, it's a feature of humans in, in general, but like... Right, there's no one that you can be absolutely sure that they're not lying to you, right? Sometimes the mainstream media lies to you. Sometimes the dissidents lie to you. Sometimes you're lying to yourself. Sometimes the church lies to you. Sometimes the synagogue lies to you. Sometimes the plumber lies to you. Right? We have to understand all information with, with a critical lens. Did the decoding gurus lose respect for Sam Harris after the children were buried in his front yard? I have no idea what, uh, what that is in regard to. But uh, let's... Let the show roll on. This is Should You Interview Nazis, part three. It is currently 2.19 p.m. in Tenham Sands in the great state of Queensland in Australia. It is December 27, and Australia's competing against South Africa in the second day of a five-day test cricket match at the Melbourne Cricket Grounds. And we're listening here to Helen Lewis talking to the host of Decoding With the Musk, it's... It's impressive <laughs> in some cases. And it, it, it that concept of like, you know, four-dimensional or nine-dimensional, how many dimensions you want chess seems to be very, very useful because when somebody does something that looks stupid or it seems counterproductive, it, there's like always this escape hatch that maybe they're doing something really clever and it's so clever that, you know, you, you, have, to, you have to just... it look Well, Tesla doesn't advertise, so... They get all, all their free advertising from Elon Musk antics. Now, I'm not sure he's playing a particularly adept game with regard to Tesla right now, but uh, I think that's the general mindset for Elon Musk. He wants to capture attention to sell his projects. Looks stupid because we are just not on their level. So, like, uh, Musk did a poll very recently when we were recording about, like, well, he not. And Elliot asks, how do the decoders feel about Elon Musk's removal of child porn from Twitter? Oh, I'm sure they're absolutely opposed, just passionately opposed. I mean, who who doesn't think that's a good idea? I think everyone thinks that's a good idea. I don't think you're going to find much opposition to removing child porn from social media. 
yeah, that's that's a good thing. Right? I think we can we can all agree on that. Right, here's uh, Helen Lewis talking with the decoding the gurus guys. Uh, he should be the CEO, and and various people were having online corneries about that because it, it ended up that he he was voted quite unanimously no that he shouldn't be in the poll. But they, I then saw people saying, oh, this was actually a poll to like catch the bots who would vote against them and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, it, it seems you know cope the cope is strong, but yeah. But the one thing I thought about um, Musk is that I, it's really interesting to me that I think he is very Trumpy, and I know we went through a phase of comparing everything to Trump, but so. Elon Musk doesn't have much credibility in the sense that he's tweeted so many crazy things. So as far as the normal human propensity to either trust or distrust when someone says something, he has said so many crazy things that I would think that normies would increasingly just distrust something when Elon Musk says it. Oh, Sam Harris said, I don't care if Hunter Biden had children buried in his basement. Right. I think that was brutal honesty. I mean, I don't think for, for Trump voters, we would care if uh, Donald Trump had children buried in his basement. We're going to vote for our self-interest and for our vision of what will make a better community, better state, a better nation and, and better world. So whatever the foibles and how many children our candidate has, has buried, I, I don't think that's going to shift many of our voting decisions. Like I am a yellow dog Republican. I will vote for the Republican even if they nominate a yellow dog. Like in both cases, the thing is the same, right? The offer is that everyone is lying to you or everyone, like no one knows what they're doing. And at least I'm honest about it. So all politicians lie or like, you know, I'm just, if you were rich, wouldn't you be a chaos dragon like this? This is what freedom really is. And to me, I, and, and Matt, I'd be really interested in your take on this because I felt like that a lot with the gurus we covered in the series that what the shape they finally took was essentially arbitrary. And I sometimes feel this about like terrorism and jihadis too, right? Like you have a combination of a personality type and the prevailing ideology of society. And that dictates rather than anything else. I, is that, maybe that's just massively simplistic, but like I look at, um, so James Lindsay obviously started off as a new atheist writer, you know, in the, in the, and is now kind of in bed with kind of Christian conservatives. Or um, Tom Torero, who's the pickup artist I deal with in episode six, started off, first of all, he wanted to be an orthodox monk. Um, oh, he also had a kind of Dawkins phase. And then he got... Well, this is hitting home, all right? <laughs> when I was a kid, I wanted to be a Seventh-day Adventist missionary. Then I got a little older, I wanted to be a world champion marathon runner. Then I got a little older, I wanted to be a general... I wanted to be a powerful politician. Then I wanted to be a sports anchor or a sports commentator. Then I wanted to be a news anchor or news commentator. Then I wanted to be an economist. Then I wanted to be an actor and a model. Then I wanted to be a highly read blogger. Then I wanted to be a TV talking head. So what's the through line? through all these twists and turns. And the through line is I'm up front talking away. Whatever it is that I want to do, somehow it always ends up with me up front talking away, even though I'm a Marxist sometimes and I'm a right winger other times, almost all the times I'm a right winger. But through all these twists and turns, somehow 40 always yearns to have as much attention as possible, as big an audience as possible, to be up front yabbering away got very into religion and then he wanted to be an orthodox monk and then he became pickup artist and he wanted to sleep with as many women as possible and like these on the surface of it like do you want to be celibate or not like make up your mind and but actually what he was always doing was always looking for that position where he, he get to talk like he would get to be a priest essentially and, and yeah i guess that's 
I so identify with that. My father's a future man. And and I guess whatever position I choose, I get to end up, you know, yapping away, telling people how to lead their lives. The chat says Elon Musk is a BS artist, but at least he is our BS artist. And it'd be either a priest of a religion or it'd be a priest of pickup artistry. And I just found that very I found that very compelling. Yeah, yeah. We've we've spoken about this before and it's it's kind of it's, it's the idea of looking at things um, through a psychological lens rather than an ideological or a political one, where the specific platform, the specific story that they're telling isn't as important as the fact that they are the person up there who's telling the story and enthralling. Yeah, I want to be the person telling the story. Damn, that, that rings pretty, pretty close to home with me. And I think it's how I'm able to analyze you know, Richard Spencer fairly effectively because I see the same thing in, in Richard Spencer and many other live streamers. So whatever their ideology, they are primarily propel, propelled not by certain ideas or by certain ideologies. I think we're primarily propelled that we want to be the people up front telling the stories. Telling everyone. And I, I don't think it's wrong to make those parallels between between Musk and Trump and the rest of our gurus. I mean... I read a book like when I was like a teenager, it was something called something like Mozart and the Enlightenment. And it was, it had this, had this funny thing. And it basically said, you can basically understand everything as like this conflict between romanticism and classicism, you know, and the. This is a great point. You can basically understand everything as a clash between romanticism and classicism. So what you have with, with a Richard Spencer is romanticism. What you have with most alt-right commentators who are not hardcore HBD statistics guys is romanticism, meaning all the institutions and committees and bureaucracies issuing reports, right? They're not telling you the truth. I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm going to break through the BS. I will be your voice. I will fight for you. I will battle for you and I will win for you, right? It's a very romantic Nietzschean vision. And uh, Richard Spencer has some of that. I think I probably got some of that. Uh, Donald Trump's got some of that. Yeah, this is the the romantic, right? The romantic sees more to reality than is actually there, as opposed to the to the liberal who puts a lot more faith in process, in bureaucracies. The the romantic figure, you know, the this the, these people that that break all of the boundaries and they have this charisma about them, they. That there's an appeal to that, and it's contrasted against a kind of a bureaucracy and and these checks and balances and systems and rules and all of that stuff. That is such a great point, right? There's the romantic. He's going to tell you the truth. He's going to fight for you. He's going to be on your side, as opposed to a checks and balances system with bureaucracies and consensus and the official reports and systems and the, the rule of law, right? Yeah, romantic versus what was a classicist. And the, it feels to me that the appeal of someone like Musk or, or Trump or all, all of those other figures, or even you know, the good old-fashioned fascists like, like, like Hitler or Mussolini, is that they are this personal figure that, that, that sweeps away all of the corruption and all of... This is a great point, no? I mean, Matt Brown, who is just up the road from me, right? He's a professor of psychology at the University of Central Queensland. He's, he's like an hour's drive away from me at this august institution. And this is a great point. The romantic versus the classicist. 
couple of the, the things and and you can trust them because you feel like you know them you have a parasocial relationship with them and and that to me feels like the difference you know people people are more accepting of musk making these arbitrary kind of decisions than they are of these shadowy executives or committees or things well maybe it also has something to do with twitter twitter is a much better place now than before Elon Musk took over for all his flaws, for all his BS, for all his flim flammery, right? For all his con artistry, Elon Musk has made Twitter significantly better. We are getting inside information about how Twitter operated. Twitter is a better place now. It is a freer place. There's more robust discussion now on Twitter than there was before. Our old friends are coming back things happening behind closed doors it kind of plays into the conspiratorial thing as well but but for a like a classical liberal type person it's like you like committees you like rules and regulations and <laughs> what kind of absolute pervert likes committees surely no <laughs> well for some things you want committees for other things you don't you prefer a strong individual for some things you want you know processes and other people you want other situations you want someone decisive running things Twitter is a far better place now than it was three months ago. There's a there's a guru that is like springing to my mind. That's a really good example of this, and I I love as well, Helen, the episode that you did covering the pickup artist, especially the the, the like uh, tr trad monk to pickup artist pipeline and un undiscovered pipeline previously. But it, my the trad monk to pickup artist timeline. That's that's excellent, right? But what unites those two, the trad bug versus the pickup artist, they both want to tell you how to live. They both want to be the one up front telling the stories. They both want an audience. They both want your admiration. They both want to feel like they're shaping lives. Right? They both want a maximum of your attention. There's not always that big of a difference between the psychology of the pickup artist and the psychology of the monk. Right? Clergy are no more or less likely to abuse children than plumbers and pickup artists. They're no better, they're no worse than regular people. Matt, you will enjoy it if you hear it as well, um, especially because you had an interview with the woman that he was married to. Uh, so there was like this personal window into it. But um, the person I'm thinking about is, is similarly has a weird collection of views in some respect, Stefan Molyneux. And I came across him actually, I think, before his Trump turn when he had uh, he's been profiled in some Channel 4. So what the hell happened to Stefan Molyneux? I haven't heard about Stefan Molyneux producing any significant work in the past two years. Has he just disappeared in a funk of depression? If so, what does that say about his philosophy of life? Or documentaries about like online cults. Um, and he had some appearances on Rogan, the second of which went very bad when Rogan played some videos of him uh, acting in a very misogynistic and, and culty way. But Stephen Molyneux, for people who don't know, is like a Canadian YouTuber who previously claimed to have the biggest philosophy uh, channel in the world. He's not a philosopher, but, he, but that is how he self-styled himself. And his, uh, his network was called Free Domain Radio because it was like a kind of libertarian. So he started out as like an anti-spanking um, yeah, I was not expecting capitalist. That. <laughs> yeah, uh, he's yeah, not adult anti-spanking. Although I think he was against that too, but he he viewed it that like oh, essentially. Don't like spanking your kids. Oh right, okay. <laughs> yeah, I I can't comment on this stance with uh, consenting adults, but he was very concerned with spanking children, and you know, as we as we all are, but like that 
That's a great descriptor of Stefan Molyneux, the anti-spanking capitalist. He felt that 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 corporal punishment led people into this, like, you know, destroyed their life. And he was he was early on a kind of manosphere figure. Um, and, and so it was basically Muller's completely destroying the lives of people. Um, and even if it was men who did the punishment, he did this famous spiel saying it's because women are rewarding the assholes. They are the ones that are fucking the species, right? Like, so, sorry, Helen, but, you know, ultimately... It is a women's fault. Yeah, it's good to cut that cleared up. But he went from anarcho-capitalist... Okay, breaking news. We have a tweet here from Dr. Jordan B. Peterson. A warning. At the same time, I am seeing a rise in anti-Semitism on the right and the left. I am seeing a lot more YouTube comments written by defenders of the Nazis. Communists have always had online defenders, but this Nazi apologism appears new. Is anyone else seeing the same? Well, I think that's been going on for a long, at a low level ever since we've had the internet. So, yeah, maybe a lot of people have taken some encouragement from the Kanye West, Nick Fuentes extravaganza, but whatever happened to that? I mean, Kanye's just gone radio silence. What is uh, Nick Fuentes doing these days? Uh, Jordan Peterson I think feels compelled to you know, comment on you know, way too much stuff. I, I've never found Jordan Peterson particularly compelling. I've never like sought out his content. I, I don't find you know, great great value there with uh, with Jordan Peterson. To uh, from like anti spanking online psychology cult to an anarcho capitalist libertarian to like MAGA strong MAGA uh, like Trump apologist and then. His current thing is, I believe, ethno-nationalist banned from all platforms. So that's quite the journey. And it's one that takes place in the space of, you know, just like seven or eight years. It's like a lifetime of ideology. And you do see in some figures who are very popular, like uh, Christopher Hitchens as as well, or, or even like this figure doesn't have exactly a political stance, but like Mark Kermode, for example, the popular film critic, were in... Is he a white supremacist now? No. No, it's, it's, not, it's, it's not come out as an anti-spanker yet. <laughs> right. he's, he was uh, like a, some variety of uh, insane Marxist in his uh, like university years. A Trotskyist, I think that's what he was. An old Trot, as he said. But Christopher Hitchens went through a whole gamut of ideologies. So is that is that something that we think is, you know, the, like for gurus, the ideology is somewhat disposable? Or is that a sub... I think that's a really good point for... For most gurus, probably the ideology is somewhat disposable. It's I need to be the person up front telling the stories. Set of gurus, like I know you've been covering Ron DeSantis, and he seems like somebody that's rather ideologically malleable, as you know, or opportunistic. Um, might be the way to phrase it, but yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's always been um, incredibly conservative, but then he, for as long as he's only 44 now, so for as long as he's been in the Republican Party, you know, the Tea Party had been in the Ascendant, and it was very obvious where the kind of energy of that party went. He was, um, when he was in Congress, he was part of the Freedom, he was a founding member of the Freedom Caucus, whose unofficial nickname for themselves, because they wanted to get stuff done, but they were also incredibly conservative, was the Reasonable Nutjob Caucus, which I think is just like, good, because other people, they're unreasonable nutjobs, we're the reasonable nutjob. Um, but, you know, so they he called had, themselves that? Yeah, they, that was it. Was that unofficial nickname for themselves, uh, which is good at level of self awareness. But he's not a guru figure, and like it's interesting, it's actually going to present a challenge to political reporters. I think coming into next year, that he's very uncharismatic. That's a great point. I mean, a lot of reporters are making this same point, but it bears repeating using somewhat different language. I haven't 
heard Ron DeSantis referred to before as not a guru figure, but a lot of people have remarked on his lack of charisma. So he's, he's like the opposite of Trump. He seems to be an efficient administrator who completely lacks charisma. He's actually kind of boring. I went to watch one of his rallies and I was a bit, I was like, oh no, this is bad because people will just zone out of this. And he's actually saying things that are quite, you know, extraordinary and, and particularly cruel. And, and, and But it's not got the fireworks of Trump, right? Trump came attended with all this hoopla of like, hey, I'm going to be evil. Watch me be evil, everyone. I'm so evil. And actually somebody who's just bureaucratically evil is, is, is much harder to get people to pay attention to. Um, but what he's done, because he's an incredibly smart guy, is he has now recruited, I would say, unreasonable nut job wingmen, basically, right? He now has outsourced all of that. So he's now got his his own version of the CDC with lots of these dissident scientists on and your your friend of mine, Brett Weinstein. And so he's got people to do that kind of level of, of heavy lifting for him to say the kind of, ooh, you know, maybe all of this is, you know, maybe. So are people making Ron DeSantis memes? I mean, in his favor, I see Ron DeSantis memes where he's the butt of the joke. But uh, are the, the good people at 4chan, are they feeling the magic of uh, a Ron DeSantis run for president? Maybe anti-Fauci should be put in prison, right? that sort of stuff. And it's been very useful for him because what it's allowed him to do is outflank Trump from the right. And he's also made a very smart calculation that the donor... And Elliot asks, think about all the unhinged leftists online. Do they ever get this guru analysis? And the answer is yes. If you head on over to Decoding the Gurus, you can see their analysis of uh, left-wing nutjobs. Brett? Brett Weinstein is not an idiot. He's just boring. No, Brett Weinstein is many things. He's not boring. He has a lot of idiotic things to say, as does Eric. And the party elites are ready to move on from Trump. And actually, for all that, there are lots of people in the base who love the crazy. There are lots of people in the base, too, who want all the delicious lib owning, but don't. I don't think people love the crazy, right? People have a resentment that the current world order, the current American order is rigged against people on the right. People have a sense that almost all institutions are controlled by the left and they strongly react to that. And it's not always a calm, considered, rational, cogent critique that they have of the left dominating our institutions, right? When you oppress people, right, they're not gonna always respond in calm, rational, coherent, cogent ways. So I don't think the support for Trump was ever about endorsing the crazy. It was about endorsing someone who would fight against the dominant liberal world order. David says, COVID killed the intellectual dark web. And Tim Humphrey says, Trump didn't start any major new wars. That was a plus. Yes, Trump did a good job in constricting immigration in rejiggering our uh, trade agreements with Mexico and Canada and with China. He re-situated America's armed response from primarily looking after Europe to rising up to deal with the surge of China. So Trump did a good job on trade. Trump did a very good job on immigration. He didn't start any new wars and he nominated a lot of right-wing judges. They, yeah, it would be nice if Decoding the Gurus did someone like ContraPoints. Decoding the Gurus has done a show on ContraPoints. They've done many shows decoding left-wing gurus. 
wouldn't want the fear that it will cross the line and the dog whistle will become a whistle and it will embarrass them. It would be vulgar. You know, there are lots of people in that base who are, you know, they've been married for 50 years. They have a very strong faith. They would love to have a Trump, but without the pussy grabbing, essentially. And Ron DeSantis is married to a very beautiful former TV anchor. He's got three adorable looking children. His wife went through breast cancer last year and he supported her through that. So he's got like, he gives you, he's got a wholesome story, but he will put people on the Supreme Court who'll make you know, Genghis Khan look like a hand-wringing liberal. And, you know, and, and pass, you know, kind of very draconian laws, which is what they want. And above everything else, if there's one thing that he has done, is tax cuts for businesses, which he's done very effectively in Florida. So he's offering the Republican Party an incredible bargain. And it depends to be seen what the percentage of people is who love the crazy. This is what I've been trying to work out for the last couple of months. You know, who wants, who wants the tax cuts and who wants the drama? And which of those sides is going to win? Uh, people uh, on the right are particularly yearning for drama and for crazy. They're yearning for a fighter or fight against you know, the left's hold on power, the left's domination of our major institutions. They want someone who's willing to fight back. Right? Now, from a left-wing perspective, people on the right wanting someone who's willing to fight hard against the left is crazy and just seeking drama and, oh, why won't they leave our left-wing institutions alone? Why won't they leave our left-wing dominated institutions alone? Why won't they leave academia alone? Why won't the right leave the mainstream media alone? Why won't the right leave Hollywood alone? Why won't the right wing leave non-governmental organizations alone? Why are they so crazy and mean? Why are they so yearning for drama? Oh... I just wish they'd left. They left left-wing domination of our major institutions. I just wish they'd left all that alone. Why won't they just leave the left in charge, running all our major institutions? Why won't they just leave the left alone? Why won't they leave our gay military alone? Why won't they leave our medical institutions alone? Why won't they leave our governing elites alone? Why do they have to be so mean to Dr. Fauci? Why do they have to criticize doctors who only want to render gender-affirming care? Why do they want to forbid gender-affirming care? Why do they want to make gender-affirming care illegal? Why won't they leave our elites alone? Why do they have to be so big and mean and cruel and all into the drama and the crazy. Why would they leave the left alone? I'm I'm curious how that picture that you're painting, and you've done you have various uh, like articles about Ron DeSantis that we'll we'll put in the show notes because I think they're very interesting about you know his kind of personality and that. But if you have Ron DeSantis uh, in the way that you described as like you know quite strategic thinker, but not a bombastic delivery guy, um, even if he tries to put that on in uh, occasion. And we're seeing somebody like Elon Musk, who from me and Matt consuming his content for the decoding episode is similar. Like in the way that he delivers things, it's quite boring and like relatively seeing whenever he's, he's talking. It's, you know, it's not even TED Talk level, the pitch usually. It's more really? low energy than that. Uh, yeah. So the, the interesting thing for me is that implies that like, if you look at Musk's Twitter uh, behavior, you would think he's, you know, this mental, uh, like, bombastic guru type. But he's not, personality-wise. He, but he can play that online. And it sounds like Ron DeSantis can outsource 
the craziness to James Lindsay and Brett Weinstein and these kind of people. So does that mean that we are approaching a point where you can just outsource your, like, you, you can just get the crazy people and or p- play the character online, but you yourself can be quite calculating and like rather boring in your delivery and still get the benefit? Is that what's going to happen? Well, that's, that's what the Republican primary of next year will demonstrate. And the other thing it will demonstrate is just the importance of that right-wing media ecosphere, which I guess we also... Look, I have one question for you, mate. Do black lives matter to you, right? Do black lives matter to you, Karen? It's a very simple question. Do black lives matter to you? Do black lives matter to you? Do black lives matter to you? Do black lives matter to you, Karen? Fucking white piece of shit, you little fucking crazy ass bitch! Matter to you, Karen. Okay, we're, we're playing the hits today. Okay, so you're probably wondering what's going on with the cricket. Well, Australia's only lost two wickets. They're at two, they're two for 253. David Warner, he is on 144. Steve Smith also batting a very good innings. All right, uh, let's go back to decoding the gurus with Matt Brown, Chris Cavanaugh, talking to Helen Lewis. So to talk about in this really casual way, but it is just incredibly 
asymmetric. You know, and I think one of the things that Musk is really wrestling with now is the idea that um, that people might say things that he doesn't agree with, right? This is sort of fascinating. All this rhetoric about kind of safe spaces on the right. And actually the one thing that lots of people on the right really cannot handle is the idea of a not safe space. Um, I'm... Uh, people want safe spaces and people also want spaces where they can debate freely, right? So wanting a safe space and wanting a space where you can debate on relatively even playing field, they're not incompatible, right? There are times that I want to fight. There are times I want to perform. There are times I want to tell stories. There are times I want to set the narratives, right? There are other times I want to be far away from computers and performing and setting narratives. I just want to be passive and lean back and you know, relax or chill or read a book, right? There's a time for safety and there's a time for war. There's a time for love and there's a time for hate, right? There's a time for being assertive and there's a time for being passive. For every feeling, for every mood, there is a time and a place and a season under heaven. I'm kind of consistently fascinated. And Ron DeSantis, but you know, he's been on, it's not Tucker Carlson, although he did a long sit down with Tucker Carlson, which he went into his backstory. And it was one of those absolutely classic backstories where this is a guy who went to Yale Law and one of the other Ivy Leagues, I think Harvard undergrad. Um, and he said, you know, the day I first arrived, um, I was in jean shorts because I'm from Florida and they all looked down on me. And, you know, it was that classic right wing populist trope of, you know, I, I went among the elites and I discovered they were all snooty and disdainful. Uh, and he's played that very carefully. Like, he So I get a lot of benefit from listening to these, I think, relatively sane center left critiques of the right. Now, I still remain on the right. It doesn't make me want to turn in my right wing credentials, but not everyone on the left is bat stuff crazy, all right? These are fairly cogent, coherent, you know, thoughtful, provocative perspectives from the left. He's very much downplayed his elite credentials um, in a much more successful way than the previous generations, the pre-Trump generations of Republicans were able to. But that is also where you have to be now to win a Republican primary. You have to be not just, you know, you have to be overtly anti-intellectual, basically. Yes, because the left dominates the places of intellectual production, right? When the left dominates the media and academia and NGOs and publishing, right? And the right doesn't like that, they are gonna come across as anti-intellectual, right? I want to examine this a little deeper. If you want to examine this a little deeper, read Ronnie Goodman's great work on uh, the conservative case for oppression. Let me get the exact title here. But I keep rereading this great work by Ronnie, Ronnie Goodman. Conservative claims of cultural oppression on the nature and origins of conservophobia. Yeah. So what do you think? I mean, that's, that's part of a broader thing with the, with the right and the left kind of switching places in a way. The, the left traditionally has been the party of the, the workers' party, um, the party of the working class and against the elites and whatever. More and more, of course, it's the party that academics and like me or journalists like you <laughs> tend to vote for. And, um, and the right has pivoted towards going for that populism. So is, is that all just part of this broader shift? Like, have you, you must have thought about that a fair bit. What does, what does all that mean? I've got a very normie analysis on this, which is exactly what you're right, that we moved in from the 20th century model of class-based and economic-based voting to now a method of values-based voting. And it's relatively true across America. I'm not sure whether or not it's so true across Australia, you can tell me. It's but, true. Um, yeah, it's true. Yeah. yeah, but you get the cities are very, in American terms, blue, right? Um, and then it's, yeah. the, it's, the, it's the surrounding counties. And that doesn't, that's not always the case, but, you know, graduates... Um, vote far more for left-wing parties now, for example. Like it's one of the biggest predictors. One, of the, I think, the single 
biggest predictor of voting remain in the EU referendum was having um, uh, was, was having a degree. So it's yeah. it switched. And I think a lot of that is about the decline of manufacturing jobs. A lot of that is about where the kind of growth in the economy has come over the last 20 years. And of course, the other big split as well is just age, which is kind of fascinating. That it, you know, the basically the conservative base in this country is people in their 50s and above. It's just that there's a lot of them and they all vote and they're very evenly distributed throughout the country. And whereas younger people are heavily concentrated in, in the cities. So there has been this enormous political realignment and it does, it has had enormous effects on on politics. But the thing that I think I do cling to, you know, the what's the matter with Kansas thesis, which is that the right in the US effectively welded on guns initially and abortion onto an economic form um, in order to keep getting people voting against their own economic interests. Um, yeah. And that's it, like, it feels very simplistic and I don't mean it in a rude way, but it is, it has been incredible. Like someone like Ron DeSantis is essentially, if you look at actually what he's interested in in policy terms, it's tax cuts for businesses and consistently all the way through what, you know, the Republican hierarchy put up with Trump because he gave, he put tax cuts in place. And they, they, just nothing else, absolutely nothing else matters. So you have to kind of, to some extent, look at all that stuff as kafebi. The trouble is that it's kafebi that affects people's actual lives. And this is why we come back to this discussion, Chris, you know, about the same thing about, you know, do they really mean it um, when people do this? You know, do these people really believe what they're saying? And I just kind of constantly think I don't care and I don't mind because it's, it doesn't matter ultimately. But the other thing... That... Okay, this is where I want to go deep. Right, what's the matter with Kansas, right? That's a 2004 book by Thomas Frank. And it still seems to be the dominant way that liberals and elites and academics and the news media try to understand why working class people vote Republican. So Ronnie Goodman consistently addresses this book, What's the Matter with Kansas, in his work in progress, Conservative Claims of Cultural Oppression on the Nature and Origins of uh, Conservophobia, which is a very powerful book. Do the Guru Decoders think Drag Queen Story Hour is worth opposing? I haven't heard them talk about Drag Queen Story Hour. So this is the point. Ronnie Goodman, all right, he's a man on the left, but uh, he has written a very powerful critique of the left from a left-wing perspective. And this is what he has to say. And uh, how, do I, how do I arrange my, my camera here? All right, let's, uh, let's go on an extended discussion of uh, Ronnie Goldman. So when a few Republicans misbehave badly, right, this is taken by the news media, is taken by liberal left elites as, as proof of you know, how bad Republicans are. This is evidence for their latent racism, for their general depravity. But no objections are raised, and you get a renowned liberal commentator like Alan Lewis, The Decoding of the Gurus, or Thomas Franks, who writes What's the Matter with Kansas, which is a book that takes aim not at one man, but at an entire state, Kansas, dismissing its conservative voting citizens as a bunch of yahoos. Right, so... Conservatives are frequently quite willing to turn around and criticize their own. But liberals seem unwilling to engage in similar self-policing. They are unwilling to acknowledge, let alone denounce, the hatred and bigotry that grows in their own ranks. So in this book that absolutely delights liberals, right, reading from Ronnie Gordon here, what's the matter with Kansas? Thomas Frank argues that his fellow Kansans have been duped into voting against their own economic interests. So from the liberal left perspective, there's nothing more important than your economic interests. The idea that people might believe in something beyond their own economic self-interest is not something that they can get their head around. 
So Thomas Frank and people like Helen Lewis think that uh, the, the working class are voting Republican because they've been tricked, they've been duped by the cynical politicians of the right, and that these right-wing operatives have succeeded in changing economic frustrations into cultural resentments against a fictional liberal elite, that these Kenny Republican operators have incited an irrational cultural class war against these elites to try to displace the rational economic class war and the powerful business interests that these Kansans should fight and who they once did fight. So the working Kansans of yesteryear were fiery progressives resisting their exploitation by plutocrats. But now Kansas has become a place where workers are more conservative than their bosses. They're driven on by a crusade that suspends their narrow material economic interests in favor of vague, unappeasable cultural grievances. Right? How did all these voters get their basic economic material interests so wrong? How could so many forget that it is the Democrats that are the party of the workers, of the poor, of the weak, and the victimized? This was once one of the ABCs of adulthood, according to Thomas Frank and Helen Lewis. Yet conservatives, those wily Kenny conservatives, have now distracted voters from these ABCs by replacing a hard-nosed economic conception of class with some airy-fairy cultural one. Class oppression is now understood to be the result not of the unprecedented concentration of economic power in the hands of business elites, but the unprecedented concentration of cultural power in a haughty left-wing intelligentsia. It is a perennial struggle between the unpretentious authentic majority and an egg-headed yet all-powerful elite contemptuous of the majority's tastes and values. So Kansas' real economic powerlessness vis-a-vis real plutocrat overlords has been completely distorted by these Kenny Republican operators into this vague sense of cultural disenfranchisement by liberalism. And conservatives condemn this as alien, as a menacing sensibility that any authentic American rejects instinctively. So from this liberal critique, Republicans have reconfigured the meaning of social class and class conflict, and they have given to themselves the mantle of the outsider and the underdog. So this is an example of how the left has become the right. So the left used to represent the underdogs, Now, the Republicans, the right, have become the left. They now represent the underdogs. So, according to Thomas Frank, from the mild-mannered David Brooks to the ever-wrathful Ann Coulter, attacks on the personal tastes and pretensions of this liberal stratum of society, the stock and trade of conservative writers, they, the conservatives, are the real outsiders, the real underdogs, they tell us, gazing with disgust upon the ludicrous manners of the high and mighty. They are the rough and ready proles, laughing along with us at the efforts of our social betters to reform and improve us. That they are often people of privilege, doing their utmost to boost the fortunes of a political party that is the traditional tool of the privilege is a contradiction that does not trouble them. Okay, this is the Helen Lewis critique. This is the typical liberal left, mainstream media, academia critique of what's going on with the working class starting to vote more and more for right-wing parties. Right. So conservatives have reinterpreted the concept of class in a basic one, in a basic way. They no longer define it as a matter of money, birth, or occupation. Class has now seen as a matter of authenticity as measured by consumer preferences, recreational predilections, and religious affiliation. This, once again, is the left-wing critique. So conservatives' dearest rhetorical maneuver, says Thomas Frank, is the latte liberal, the idea that liberals are identifiable by their tastes and their consumer preferences, and that these tastes and preferences reveal the essential arrogance and foreignness of liberalism. So, by contrast to the effete pretentiousness and snobbery of liberalism, 
the conservative denizens of red state America promoted a sincere, down-to-earth reverent and attuned to the rhythms of the universe. Are you attuned to the rhythms of the universe? Republicans says the chat need to give their voters something tangible like Democrats give their voters. This means tax cuts. Conservatives are often opposing efforts to harm children, therefore they, their tone is less aloof and detached, says the chat. Well, there are many ways of serving people aside from tax cuts. Maybe you can roll back affirmative action, you know, roll back the administrative state, you know, roll back left-wing control of our major institutions. So fixating upon the personal tastes and the pretensions of liberals, conservatives have cast liberalism not as a political creed that speaks to the needs of the many, but as a lifestyle choice that appeals to the tastes of the few. This, once again, is Thomas Frank's left-wing critique. Regular Americans are oppressed, not by multinationals polluting their air and water, but by the earnest young vegans of Washington, D.C., two years out of brown, already lording over the hardworking people of the vast interior from a desk at the EPA. So from this left-wing perspective, conservatives have persuaded Kansans that government regulation should be assessed, not according to the concrete interests they advance, but according to the cultural pretensions they channel. Preference for environmental regulation over pollution is now placed in the same category as a preference for veganism over meat or cafe latte over black coffee, or just manifestations of an imperious liberalism tightening its tentacles at every opportunity. So this is the standard left-wing critique of what's happened with the working class increasingly voting Republican. So from a right-wing perspective, this thesis is much more akin to racial hostility and xenophobia than to legitimate social commentary. And it's not just that the thesis is mistaken, it's essentially an act of aggression, even violence, that is on the same level morally equivalent to racist outbursts at Republican rallies. So this isn't just disinterested left-wing sociological reflection. This is just one more elite gesture, just another left-wing slander trying to reform his social inferiors. So far from discrediting the cultural grievances, it examines what's the matter with Kansas, provides a further illustration of their justice. Is, those, is respecting those with different views, but also among the ABCs of adulthood. Heartfelt disagreement notwithstanding, are we not obligated to accept others' opinions as face values rather than dismissing them as epiphenomena of forces that we alone have the sagacity to discern, which Tom, Thomas Frank and Helen Lewis seem to do? The preeminent question of our time, then, isn't why many in the working class vote against their economic interests, but why conservatives are routinely held accountable for the slightest hints of real or perceived bigotry, while liberals can casually indulge their own bigotry in plain view without fear of reproach. So, are not hatred and incivility evenly distributed against, across the political spectrum, but the mechanism of incivility varies from one milieu to another. So for a certain type of conservative, it is crude epithets. For a liberal commentator like Thomas Frank, it's an eloquent essay. But superior eloquence is no substitute for the ABCs of adulthood. Right? Just because many elites on the left right, are more eloquent than working class people of the right doesn't make them more good or more true or more wise. Right? Whether you call someone who's plainly not a terrorist a terrorist or attribute his views on abortion to the political manipulation of economic frustration, the upshot is the same in trying to exclude people from the equal respect due our fellow citizens. 
that liberals mistreat conservatives in a way that mirrors how privileged dominant majorities have consistently mistreated and marginalized minorities. And so liberals now occupy a position akin to the one they would impute to conservatives. They have become callous overlords, aggrandizing themselves at the expense of the weak and the voiceless. So you have all these right-wing issues, electoral politics, economic trends, international developments, religion, morality, but the conservative claim of cultural oppression is defined not by any particular subject matter, but by a set of objectives. It's a mode of analysis. It is a spirit of argument. So Thomas Frank sees conservatives no longer concerned to defend the established order of things, no longer concerned with protecting your institutions, where would they leave? Uh, institutions in the hand of the left, where won't they leave drag queens story hour alone? Where won't they leave the drag queens alone? Alright, so instead, conservatism now, it accuses, it rants, it points out hypocrisies, and it gleefully pounces on contradiction. Alright, this reminds me of the way that uh, Muslim terrorists fight against, you know, the great Satan. Right, they are impish, they are defiant, they they don't fight by the Queensberry rules, right? So marginalized minorities don't always observe the rules of the game. So with the left dominating control of our institutions, conservatives fight every which way they can, just like the Afghans and the Muslims fight every which way they can because they can't, say, defeat European Union or the United States of America on an even playing field. So conservative claims of cultural oppression are a form of political and intellectual judo. They seek not to resist liberalism directly, but to re redirect the prestige of liberalism against liberalism itself. This is why Ronald Goodman is so great here, using a left-wing critique of the left. They seek to pull the rug out from under liberalism. Right? They step without invitation or permission into the shoes of the very people they stand of oppressing. At the same time, thrusting liberals into the shoes of the oppressors. So you can, just like you can have racial prejudice that assumes more genteel and intellectualized forms and cross-burning and black lynching Klansmen, right? So too, conservophobia, right? It's inherently a sophisticated and intellectualized bigotry and not necessarily easy to recognize as such. But if you can see through the sophistication, the intellectualization, right, you can drill down to the oppression of people who don't you know, sign on to the liberal agenda. All right, just you have critical race theorists who hold that not being black is intrinsic to the social definition of whiteness, and radical feminists who hold that not being female is integral to that of maleness. So to conservatives, they should insist that liberalism is now defined by anti-conservative animus. That liberalism, no less than racism, sexism, and homophobia, that it denounces, now defines itself in opposition to another, a role now assumed by conservatives. So liberal conservophobia is a far more complex creature than the traditional bigotries. It is something that blurs the line between the intellectual and the visceral, which is a complicated amalgam of rational and irrational elements is a phenomena fraught with profound moral ambiguity in a way that racism, sexism, and homophobia are not. So this is why, until now, until Ronnie Goldman's book, Conservative Claims of Cultural Oppression, have resisted rational exposition. 
So Thomas Frank and other liberals like to go off on right-wing populism, like to debunk conservative claims of cultural oppression. This all seems like anti-intellectualism, right? This is Helen Lewis's critique of the right that is now anti-intellectual, right? Why is anti-intellectualism one of the grand unifying themes of the right-wing backlash, the mutant strain of class warfare that underpins so many of Kansas's otherwise random-seeming grievances? So why do we have this great backlash in the culture wars? And why do we have this curious amassing of petty, unrelated beefs with the world? So Angelo Cotevilla, he talks about the country-class ordinary Americans who speak with many voices and define themselves in terms of reflexive reactions against the ruling class. And now we can begin to see that this seemingly anarchic diversity on the right is underpinned by a unifying impulse to tear down liberalism's veil of illusion and to try to restore an even playing field between liberals and conservatives. So what Thomas Frank and Helen Lewis dismiss as a curious amassing of petty grievances is better understood as a right-wing analog of the left eclecticism that now dominates the humanities. So left eclecticism encompasses a whole variety of anti-establishment modes of thought, but they're unified by an understanding ultimately borrowed from the Marxist ethos that analytic theoretical discourse is to be judged primarily by the radicalism of its stance. So the schools of thoughts thus favored make sharply divergent claims, yet all of them set themselves against repressive Western institutions and practices. So they deal with a given painting or a given novel or a given piece of architecture, especially one dating from the capitalist era, they do not primarily aim to show the work's character or governing idea. The goal is rather to subdue the work through aggressive demystification by positing its socioeconomic determinants, its ideological implications. They scan it for any encouraging signs of subversion, and they then judge the resort against an ideal of total freedom. So that's left-wing eclecticism. Now we have right-wing eclecticism, the conservative claims of cultural oppression. Right. It's characterized by sharp internal disagreements in substance and rhetoric, but it is marked by a certain unity of purpose. And this unity of purpose is to subdue liberalism through aggressive demystification. So right-wing eclecticism seeks not to refute liberalism as a set of ideas, but to expose liberalism's basic self-understanding as fraudulent, to reveal that the various existential, epistemic, and ideological motivations that liberals would impute to conservatives are the hidden rot lying at the core of liberal virtue. It is liberals, not conservatives, who need order, closure, and structure. It is liberals, not conservatives, who pursue group dominance and endorse inequality. So if conservatives are to discredit conservophobia, they must first discredit those from whom it issues the liberal elites. And this is what the critical theory of the right ultimately endeavors to do. That's Ronnie Goldman. It's interesting, Matt, is what you were saying about the kind of personality thing is it does suggest what the remedy is for these gurus, right? Which has to be structural rather than personal because those people are always going to exist. And what you have to do is, can, is create a society in which they don't flourish. That's, that's, the, <laughs> that's, that's the only thing that we can do. What are the things that we would do that would mean that, you know, a proto-Weinstein doesn't, doesn't, no one listens to him. He's just, you know, sitting there ranting quietly to himself about ivermectin. I, I, so on that very topic, Helen, and you've fallen neatly into the, the jaws of, of our, our trap because you, you personally are, are somewhat responsible for encouraging a present day guru, somebody who was once, and still is to some extent, like associated with the left, uh, certainly was at that time, but now has a right-wing populist streak in them, right? I'm speaking, of course, of one Russell Brand, 
who during your time at New Statesman edited the, the uh, a special issue, right? Around about the time when he was uh, opining on politics. He is often opining in politics now, but at that time it was on the back of the interview with Jeremy Paxman, the BBC political reporter. Wasn't that off the back of that? No, said, I mean, don't, don't say... Oh, no. Don't, don't say no, no. Don't say this to anyone who worked with the New Statesman at the time, because we set him up with that interview to promote the issue, and then it was every, it was the only thing that anyone remembers. But it's fine because actually that's now all quite embarrassing, and the fact that people don't think I had anything to do with it is, is, is probably you better. did that. Wait, that's even that's even you're even more responsible than I give you credit. So you are part of the reason that he was talking to Jeremy Paxman and told everyone like, why vote? What difference does it make? They're all a bunch of like idiots anyway. So do we do we at least have some? Thanks to give to you for encouraging Russell Brand to become more political and to tell more people about his opinion. Or uh, are you? Okay, so I'm listening to a podcast of uh, Decoding the Gurus, talking with Helen Lewis, a BBC journalist. She's just released a series of podcasts for BBC Radio Four, but you can look them up on Google. A new series on the uh, the new gurus. Anyway. Let's get back to Ronnie Goodman's rejoinder to this type of critique. So people like Helen Lewis and the left trace cultural grievances of working class Republican voters to the machinations of cynical Republican strategists. But they would never extend this analysis to the third world, right? Left-wingers will dismiss working class Republican voters as a bunch of yahoos but uh, they would never admit that they consider Muslims too backwards and fanatical to entrust them with the ballot. So what we get down to is a fundamental difference in a theory of human nature. Right, so from a left-wing perspective, people are primarily motivated by their economic self-interest, but they never include this critique for themselves. So did Thomas Frank write this book uh, to maximize his economic utility, or was he prepared to sacrifice some economic utility for a higher ideal? So liberals typically do not accuse starving artists in Brooklyn of being distracted from their real interests by their bohemian culture, which doesn't provide the tangible rewards of an MBA. So liberals don't judge liberal academics in the humanities who forfeit higher salaries in the private sector so that they can construct and deconstruct reality. So Liberals don't use the same critique on their own kind. So the old Enlightenment framework is that human beings are governed by reason. Human beings are basically good, that uh, human beings are buffered, meaning that uh, whatever you know, sexual scene goes on in the, the houses next to me, that doesn't have to affect me. Right, so... People on the left, liberals believe in the Enlightenment. They believe that people are fundamentally rational, have the capacity to be strategic and rational, that people are conscious, that they are literal, that they're logical, they're universal, they're unemotional, and they're disembodied. So liberals are fundamentally out of touch with human nature, which is not basically good, which is not necessarily fundamentally rational, logical, literal, universal, unemotional, and disembodied or buffered. So the old Enlightenment view is that you know, we're fundamentally good, fundamentally driven by reason. But 
the ideas that we come up with through our brains depend in large measure on what's going on in our anatomy with our hormones and on the way that we're functioning with other people and with ourselves. So our ideas of morality, our ideas of politics are embodied, right, in this rich way. The, the ideas we create and the ideas that we carry out are not merely a product of our neural anatomy and the connectivity of our brains, but also by ways that we function bodily in the physical and social world. So our moral and political views cannot be altered by argument, rational argument alone. Because what we experience to be the force of an argument is always bound up with our broader social and physical functioning as embodied organisms. So if your muscles are tight, if you've got a lot of unnecessary tension and compression going on in your body, your freedom to move is going to be constricted, your freedom to feel is going to be reduced, and your freedom to think is also going to be constructed. Right. We think and we feel in our bodies. So our political attitudes emerge out of the synapses firing in our brains, which take place within our bodies. If we've got muscular pain, that's going to affect how we think. If we've got crippling toothache or back pain, or we've just broken our ankle, that's going to change how we think about political philosophy. Right? We all have hero systems, and we see a world filled with heroes, villains, victims, helpers. And we have an emotional structure which kind of binds this dramatic structure to positive and negative emotional circuitry going through our whole body and also firing in our brain. So we have feelings like anger, fear, and relief, which are responses to developments within the dramatic structure that we have created, such as villainy, battle, victory. This is why we feel elated when our political candidate wins. This is why we feel depressed when he loses. So the candidate's fate has been neurally integrated with our dopamine circuitry, which is activated by his victory and is suppressed by his defeat. So we aren't born with these narratives, but their foundations become physically encoded in our brains very quickly, and they constitute the lens through which we see others and ourselves. So our choice of political candidate can change, but the deep narratives that ultimately drive our choices are strongly resistant to change because these have been synaptically, neurally encrypted into our physiology. They cannot be altered absent a transformation in our broader brain structure and endocrine system and muscular system. So arguments will not generally change our minds because language has changed our brains. The right words and the right images have strengthened some synaptic connections while weakening others to the point that uh, political reorientation is difficult, but still possible. So this is the new enlightenment, recognize that we are embodied, that we're not always driven by you know, rational, logical concerns, that we're not born basically good. So this understanding of the new enlightenment, as opposed to the old enlightenment with the view that we're basically good and buffered, right, helps to better understand conservative claims of cultural oppression. So liberals are prepared to bring the full force of their rhetorical firepower to bear in their attacks against conservatives. Now, this new enlightenment suggests that the metaphor of firepower reflects an accurate, intuitive appreciation of the neurological states, where the usual distinctions between force and persuasion is dissolved. Now, the traditional enlightenment view is that beliefs are somehow disembodied. They are suspended above us in ether. 
right? This is a fundamental misunderstanding of the nature of beliefs, that all you have to do is flip, you know, the right bit of correct information and wrong beliefs will dispel like bursting a soap bubble. This isn't how we work. The truth is our beliefs are physical. They're encoded into our brain, our endocrine system. To attack them is like attacking a part of a person's anatomy because our beliefs are in our anatomy, in our brain. It's like pricking someone's skin. Attacking someone's beliefs is like pricking their skin, breaking their skin, you know, breaking their bones. So liberals say, oh, they're just engaged in an assault against conservatives and their values, right? So they imagine that beliefs are somehow suspended above us in ether and therefore immune from assault. So conservatives complain of their persecution by liberals and liberals say what they actually mean here is not imprisonment or excommunication or disenfranchisement, but just criticism. But when you understand things naturally, right, this criticism can be a highly intrusive thing akin to assault. So yeah, words in this understanding can be violent. And this endless pricking away at conservative identities slowly slowly erodes the synaptic strength of the neural connections underpinning, say, traditional morality, strict father morality. This is a kind of assault. So the highest ideals of strict father morality, which conservatives generally hold by, may not track with human flourishing. Right? They, they, they might not, the conservative critiques might get the facts wrong, but they might get the subjective experience right. right? This is an old enlightenment distinction. The new enlightenment tells us that the subjective experience correlates with certain facts that are just as tangible as the economic realities that liberal privilege as uniquely substantive, right? There's no inherent reason why economic realities are the truly substantial be-all and end-all of politics, right? The, the pain that we feel with that which is precious to us, such as traditional conceptions of marriage and, and sex and the ways of organizing family and community, when these traditional conceptions come under assault, that is physically painful to us. So liberals often claim to have, you know, high open personalities, high in openness, but this personality tends to be closed vis-a-vis conservatives vis-a-vis particular human types and hero systems. So the conservative hero system is much cruder than the hero system of people on the left. People who are traditional have hero systems revolving around community, family, religion, nation, uh, culture, race, geography, right? These are fairly crude, blunt, direct, obvious hero systems. Left-wing hero systems are about ideology, dispelling ignorance, education, the pursuit of science. They are more sophisticated. So liberals refuse to recognize the violence entailed by their constant attack on a traditional perspective on life. So liberals believe in the Buffett identity, but they cannot take their belief in naturalism to its logical conclusions, recognize the epistemological subject as the expression of a supra-epistemological imperative of a hero system that comes at the expense of another one. Liberalism is another hero system like conservatives. 
So conservatives say liberals just don't get it, and this is what they don't get. So conservatives see liberalism as in power, whether it's politicians or elected or not, even when Republicans control all three branches of government, even when no Democratic presidential nominee has called himself a liberal since Walter Mondale. Because for conservatism, liberalism is beyond politics. Liberalism is a tyrant that dominates our lives in countless ways, great and small, and which is virtually incapable of being overthrown. So this is from Ronnie Goldman's powerful, powerful book, Conservative Claims of Cultural Oppression. So here is Helen Lewis talking to the Decoding the Gurus. The, a lot of people that do similar things seem, seem to be quite extreme and seem to be like haters or being whatever. And we, we do try to, it is helpful for us to remind ourselves that we, we have a day job and this is just this thing and it doesn't matter. I think once you start really. Okay, that's a good point there. Let me get the full context. Uh, compulsive behavior, including Elon. So Yeah, I did. Okay, more context. Sorry for you, actually, that you, you would have been, it would have been better for you had Elon taken your Twitter away, not giving you more of your. Okay, need even more context here. Um, so, you know, there, there's aspects like that, but yeah. But Joe Rogan is the classic exemplar of that, right? Like, uh, and, and I remember having a weird defense of Joe Rogan during the whole anti-vax thing, which is the fact that if you watch American TV, they are advertising all kinds of insane experimental medicine. That, and then they have to list the side effects at the end. And it's all like, you know, it'll affect Shatner's bassoon and give you, you know, crunkles or whatever. Like, and, and it's just the lack of, lack of regulation and the fact that you are allowed to do direct to consumer advertising. It comes up in one of my special interests, which is child gender medicine. I think to most people in Europe, the idea that a surgeon can directly advertise mastectomies to teenagers is just mind blowing. Like this is just not in my in my world. And so, but the American system of kind of individualist consumerism is just in okay. So there is a lefty critiquing the ability of American doctors to provide gender affirming care by performing mastectomies on underage girls in a very different place. And so, while I I don't think Jerrigan was right to do that. I can also see how it looked like hypocrisy given the overall p picture of medical regulation in America. And he does an incredibly good job, I think, of being an average guy who's just kind of interesting and interested in people. And I do, like watching him discuss the liver king, I just found it really, really enjoyable and really likable, just laughing at this comically hench guy who's clearly had ab implants, being like, look at this, look at this, look at this. Like he did have a kind of quite appealing emperor's new clothes, like boy in that story, quality to him. But yeah, I love the productivity hackers. They were all absolute poppets, I thought. Um, but it's all, but that world is quite dark. Again, it kind of comes back to the structures, right? What is the, what is the lessons and the message that people have got that they think that they need to do 15 side hustles and they need to, you know, be boxing out their day in half, uh, hour points. It's all, it's all a piece of that kind of Amazon warehouse approach to work where you must be monitored and controlled all the time and your output must be kind of consistent in this very machine like way. So even the ones that I really liked, I had reservations about, but you know, I felt sorry for some people as well. And to return to our, one of our frequent subjects, James Lindsay, he told me in the interview that he was glad that Twitter had suspended him. Now this may have been cope at the time but he sounded really genuine about the fact he was like i was looking for an exit from twitter and i'm actually kind of glad like not exactly said it in these terms but like i've got my life back and of course what happens a couple of months later he's unsuspended and he's tweeting away dozens of times a day and it's just like to me looks like very compulsive behavior that isn't actually he's probably aware that it's not making him happy and, and, and it made me feel more it did change my opinion to him because it did make me feel like you're not entirely in control of it. Like, i do feel sorry for you actually that you I think that's a pretty good critique. I think a lot of people are out of control on social media, including many people on the right. You would have been, it would have been better for you had Elon taken your Twitter away, not giving you more of your delicious attention crap. Yeah, I can't remember, Matt. Did you hear the episode where, with, with James Lindsay in it? No, I didn't get you to that one. Because no. Helen puts to him that he, like it's a, the tone of the interview is, is interesting because you're, 
you're not being aggressive with him, which I also think is a good idea because he would have been, he would have responded like, you know, in the Dr. Phil. Um, there a clip and nobody needs to hear that. But because you were being more like friendly to him, when you put the point to him about like feuding with the Holocaust Memorial, um, and what Auschwitz Museum, yeah. Never sorry, argue yeah. with the Auschwitz Museum on Twitter. That's the rule for life. Yeah, he, he seemed unusually, uncharacteristically to be slightly apologetic about it. Like, well, I wasn't really feeling, I was just taking issue with one of the, and we'll, we'll see if they actually do that. But he did seem to uh, recognize how that looks <laughs> like to normal people. If you're going home to your parents and being like, yeah, so I'm currently in a feud with the, uh, yeah, the Holocaust Memorial site. But, you know, don't. There's nothing about being a Holocaust Memorial site or being in the show of business that gives you any more truth, gives you any more wisdom, gives you more any more ethical or cultural capital than those who are in plumbing, right? There's nothing about studying, studying genocides that makes you more wise, more true, more good, or gives you higher ground. There's absolutely nothing wrong with feuding with some Holocaust organization, right? Holocaust organizations are not endowed with any special qualities, right? They're not more righteous than you or me. They are not more truthful than your neighborhood plumber or gardener or accountant, right? There's nothing in being in the Holocaust business. There's nothing inherent in being in the show of business that makes you morally superior to anyone. There's nothing about being in the show of business that makes you more dedicated to the truth. There's nothing about being in the Shoah business that means that you are better or on a higher level or more cultured or more morally sensitive than anyone else. There's nothing wrong with feuding with what are frequently left-wing hacks, but even when it's right-wing people you know, doing Shoah business, they are pushing their agenda. So people on the right, people on the left use the Holocaust or use other genocides to push their agenda. And there's nothing wrong with pointing that out Right? pointing out that they're running a scam. Right? There's nothing inherent in surviving a Holocaust or studying a Holocaust right? or setting up a non-governmental organization, a 501c3 about the Holocaust that gives you the high ground, that makes you truer, purer, you know, more righteous, more wise, more ethical, nothing. Don't listen to the naysayers about that. So it, it was, that was interesting to me that, the you know, we getting the more human response. And like, if you look at Jordan Peterson's Twitter behavior since he's brought back, like that's not, it's not good for him. He's like tweeting every couple of minutes about like different headlines that he's, he's just come across. Like it, it, it does look like a bunch of them have issues with uh, compulsive behavior, including Elon. So. Yeah, I did mm. feel, again, I just say about feeling sorry for James Lindsay to some extent. He did also say that he's like persona non grata on the right as well, which was really interesting to me because that's not my perception of it at all. But I just think what often happens with those people who spiral out online is that they alienate more and more people. Also, there's nothing, as the chat points out, there's nothing inherent in being in the show business that makes you more Jewish, makes you more in tune with Judaism. Right? There's nothing in Judaism about needing to go out there and fight anti-Semitism. That is overwhelmingly something that people who don't live lives regulated by traditional Judaism they go and take that on as a mission so that they can feel more Jewish or it's a good living for some Orthodox Jews who can't make it in, in the regular world. Well, they can you know, fall back on either doing Kiruv or working in, in the Shoah business. But uh, 
it's not an inherent part of Judaism. It's not an inherent part of some noble or, or beautiful or wise activity. And they become, and it's really being ostracized is really horrible. And without a kind of group of normie friends online or like a normie job, like one of the people I interviewed who came off, I think, a lot better is Ibram Kendi, another one, a person that you've decoded. And one of the things he said is like, I'm an academic. And that's his primary identity is like, I'm an academic. I fundraise for my Boston Center for Anti Racist Research. Now, I think he's got some pretty kooky ideas. I think the idea of a department of anti racism just sounds impossibly unworkable. And the idea of no neutrality, everything is racist or anti racist is just, you know, is, is impossible in practice. Okay, I think I'm going to pass here on Ibram Kendi. Really, really sad. He could have been that person, and he's, he's cho- he chose a different thing. Um, that's, that's the path of the dark side, as, as, as Yoda says. But it doesn't surprise me that um, Jensen Z is, can be a very nice person interpersonally. We're, we're friendly with people who are uh, or were very good friends with him, and they would often emphasize that point. And it's, of course, true that everyone contains multitudes, and the, the persona that the, a public figure of any kind Okay, wait, if everyone c- contains multitudes, that why do you re- want to reduce people to being racist or sexist or Holocaust denying? I mean, quote-unquote Holocaust denial occupies you know, 0.01 of Nick Fuentes' concerns as far as I'm aware. I haven't listened to hundreds of hours of Nick Fuentes, yet he is routinely called a Holocaust denier, even though he, he says almost nothing about the, the Holocaust. So... Matt Brown, you say people contain multitudes, but you're very quick to reduce people to Holocaust denier, Nazi, racist, anti-Semite, homophobic. Mind inhabits. Um, yeah, that's. It sounds like a platitude, doesn't it? But it's obviously not the totality of them. No, right? and and, and and that's what the, the same thing I think with Peterson too. The way that David Fuller talks about going to meet him in I think 2017, um, and sort of talking about this sort of bumbling eccentric professor. And that's the thing is that you can kind of see it's a bit like the kind of Arnold Rimmer, Ace Rimmer thing. You can see the path that he took where he was just, <laughs> sorry, that was a very nerdy 90s sci-fi reference. Um, we love, love, love that. The, the geriatric millennials out there. But um, but like the, you can see the version where he's just like the kooky old guy who wears sort of funny waistcoats and has some slightly odd ideas about evolution or whatever it is, but is essentially like a beloved teacher. And I feel really, really sad. He could have been that person and he's, he's cho- he chose a different path. With all the same characteristics, right? And and just chose different bits of his personality to emphasize and, and lean into. It's I think that is the yep. real tragedy of John Peterson. Yeah. I, I, I'm not gonna let you both away with the subtle nagging of my online Twitter feed. This is actually an intervention, there. Chris. This is we have <laughs> yeah. actually like, all been leading up to this. There is there's a constant reprieve from people that oh I Chris I like Chris on the podcast. <laughs> but, yeah, but it's just because they can't hear the tone on Twitter. That's and the chat says, I would hope that you do not mean that Kiru, which is Orthodox outreach to secular Jews, is entirely or even overwhelmingly nearly a scam. No, I'm making the point that people who are great Talmud scholars don't occupy themselves with Kiru. Like Kiru is the lowest IQ living for a professional Orthodox Jew, right? If they could make it as Talmud scholars, they would make it as Talmud scholars. If they could make it as a rabbi's rabbi, they would make it as a rabbi's rabbi. If they could make it as a congregational rabbi, they would make it as a congregational rabbi. If you can't make it in anything else as a rabbi in Orthodox Judaism, and you still want to work as a rabbi, then you go work in Kiru. Kiru, generally speaking, does not attract the best of the best, does not attract the brightest of the brightest, does not attract the great Torah scholars. It does not attract the great Talmudic minds. It attracts the lowest IQ types who are Orthodox rabbis and want to be professional Orthodox rabbis. Now, many of these people are wonderful, they're fun, they're entertaining, they have congenial personalities, I enjoy them. They also have 
an astronomical rate of predators in this group, of, of financial abuse, sexual abuse. So I find the more charming and charismatic the, the person, whether they're a rabbi or a plumber, the more likely they're also to be predators and abusers. So that's the difference. And I probably would get on from Matt Sproler. Chris, um, Chris I get DMs from people. I get DMs from people who listen to the podcast and have been abused in their minds, abused by you on Twitter. And then they DM me. <laughs> that's amazing. Like, to... control your wife. Yeah. I can't stop him. I can't stop him. But yeah, so I have sympathy for, for those uh, people so inclined to argue with people online, whatever it is like to be one of them. But the, um, that, that aspect of having like a degree, one of like, uh, what's the word? Like not healthy, healthy self disregard, like knowing that you are not the, the next Galileo, right? That like genuinely, I'm very well aware of that. And, and like Matt and I are quite content to be middle bride academics. Uh, Eric Weinstein referred to me as a middle bride academic at one point. And I was like, well, it's fine. <laughs> okay, let's have a look at the New York Post. Top school principal hides students' academic awards in the name of equity. For years, two administrators at Thomas Jefferson High School for Science and Technology have been withholding notifications of national merit awards from the school's families, most of them Asian thus denying students the right to use those awards to boost their college admission prospects and earn scholarships. This episode has emerged amid the school district's new strategy of equal outcomes for every student without exception. School administrators have implemented an equitable grading policy that eliminates zeros, gives students a grade of 50% just for showing up, and assigns a cryptic code of NTI for assignments not turned in. It's a race to the bottom. Interesting article here in the New York Post. Fairly, fairly accurate description. Um, but he took it as an insult, right? Because I'm not in the genius class in, from his perspective. And that that does seem to be something that like is is inoculating to a certain extent. Like if if you have that tendency to uh to be willing to entertain critiques and to see yourself as like, you know, when you're getting very up on your high horse and something that you were also slightly comical. And I, I think... Oh, like, I definitely feel like that about America. Like, I, the other thing that obviously happens is that the gurus do tend to be American. And I do think there is just a cultural difference of Britain, I think, particularly has got tall poppy syndrome where it's like, oh, hark at you. You know, who do you think you are? And we just, anybody who kind of puts themselves forward, you know, oh, she's no better than she ought to be. Like, there's a whole cultural discourse about basically people just sort of loving themselves that we just don't like. So you get these absurd interviews with celebrities where they have to pretend to be like other people, even though they're sitting in a big pile of gold like smog. And I just think America is far more okay with... I'm here. I'm great. I'm rich. Did I mention I'm, like it's very interesting? Like I think Dave Chappelle is an incredibly good comedian, but the comedy is always based around like I'm really rich, and I just it doesn't. I, I saw him in Britain a couple of months ago. It doesn't quite work as well in Britain because you're like, well, don't don't go on about it, Dave. I mean, come on, just <laughs> need to make a big deal out of it. Yeah, yeah. There's a because in the series, um, this is like slightly uh, like behind the scenes information I'm re- revealing, but but I, I think uh, it's is it okay? Anyway, we can <laughs> if not. I know, but yeah, yeah. Chat says. Does the New York Post have a carefully developed skill set knowing just how far they can push the envelope? And the answer to that is yes. People are touchy about certain kind of subjects, right? Like you can see it in like Robert Wright recently spoke to Brett Weinstein and it was a, a fairly uh, contentious interview because he was just calling him on a very specific issue. But like the direct questioning was not appreciated. Uh, James Lindsay cut off David Fuller 
whenever he uh, suggested that he would put his impossible conversations into practice um, on an episode and speak to a critic uh, that he'd been mean to online. So like in general, uh, gur- the, the gurus tend to regard, you know, criticism as bad faith motivated and, and like coming from a negative space. And I know that like even the people that we regard as like good gurus or, you know, we talked about candy. So if you bring up topics that are uncomfortable, like for example, the fees that they are paid for talks, which can be quite substantial and which seem counter to the argument about, you know, capitalism being this terrible system that we must have. I know that there is the little cartoon in my head of, oh, interesting, you criticize capitalism, yet you participate in it. But, but there is the fact that, like, there's degrees, right? And if your speaking fee is, like, uh, in the five-figure category, I think you're, you're, you're doing capitalism right. Um, and so in, in that case, like... Okay, interesting critique. Let me fast forward a little bit here. I think I'm having as somebody who sits on the kind of, I think I describe myself to Aaron Rabinovitz as woke skeptic. You know, that people are so full of this howling criticism of the right that they just think they just go into lockdown mode and you mustn't criticize the left at all. And the same thing happens on the other, like, other side, that because people are really aware of the attack line used against them, and that's the attack line used against Kendi, right? You're a hypocrite. You say you're against capitalism and yet you're wearing shoes. Checkmate. Um, but, but you have to, you have to, and sometimes the best way to do it is to acknowledge the elephant in the room and just say, you know, I'm going to, like, I want to hear your answer on this. What's your, what is your answer on this? You, and I like frame it actually in a more um, collusive way of saying, you must have heard this criticism, right? Because what you, what people want absolutely is, is certainty. So this Helen Lewis is a smart woman, pretty effective journalist, uh, very articulate. I, I, you know, I'm going to have to put this in because we have to give you the chance to respond to this. Here it is. And then they know you're not trying to hoodwink them. It's not a gotcha. You're not trying to get them. You are trying to get them on record with their response to this very common criticism. And that's a job I don't think I would have had to do in journalism quite the same way a decade ago. But people are really aware of, of what the potential outcomes might be. So actually, the best thing usually is just to say, this is what I'm going to put in the program. Like, tell me, this is your chance to tell me what you think. Yeah. And that famously went very well for you recently when you asked someone for a comment on an article that you had, had, had written about the um, art industry. So right, but, you... but that's, again, that's about fairness. And like having worked for an American magazine for a couple of years, I really appreciate their madly rigorous fact-checking process. Uh, which you do go to, it's an incredibly awkward experience. Like I have this thing, I was thinking if I ever go and lecture journalism students again, stop me if I told you this before, but I th- So American journalism is not nearly as entertaining as English journalism. It is not nearly as emotionally cathartic and as compelling, uh, but it's far more ethical. It's far more factually rigorous. Uh, the New Yorker is a generally factually rigorous uh, publication. But uh, British publications generally are a lot more fun to read. I think every journalism student should get into a lift and face the wrong way and face all the people who are already in the lift and just stare them down. Because that is the best training you can possibly have for journalism is overcoming social conformity and the unwritten codes that we'll have and feeling really, really awkward and embarrassed and doing it anyway. Um, and that's what, you have to, and like, that's what you have to do with the BBC. You have to ask people the challenge questions. That's what they're called. You know, that's what you're doing if you're Atlantic fact-checking. You have to say, I'm going to, send, I'm going to say this, this, I'm going to shade you, like this, this, and this. And then, you, and then you have, here's your chance to respond. And people don't want to do it, not because necessarily they're biased, but just because it's really uncomfortable to say, I think you're a charlatan. I'm going to say you're a charlatan. What do you say to that? Like, who wants to, who wants to do What kind of sociopath wants to do that? Don't, don't answer that. <laughs> <laughs> I, can, I can see you looking with a glint in your eye. Uh, yeah, well, they're not me, that's for sure. Um, yeah, you know, we've had a few chats with gurus who have exercised their right to reply, and I've come away from them thinking exactly the same thought, that I'm not the kind of psychopath that could 
could easily do that. Like, it's not a natural human thing. I know I should be challenging them. I should be. And I, I kind of try a little bit, but um, I, I'm, I'm like a, I'm like a limp fish. I don't know. It's, it's so, it's just doesn't come naturally. Uh, yeah. Well, there, there's, uh, I, I, I'm more comfortable with it. To some... I, I'm like that. I, I like certain types of confrontation, but not, not that blunt, bloody level of confrontation. But maybe not as, as much as you, Helen, but the, there's two related questions I haven't, I suppose, uh, the more relevant for what we're talking about is so long form podcasts are a thing. Um, I don't know, you know, people have indulgent unedited conversations with people that they like about, uh, specific topics. Um, and you know, we have mixed feelings about it. Um, but I, I'm curious when it comes to like the example, which currently is center of my mind is Lex Friedman is planning to interview a host of controversial people. He already has famously interviewed Kanye West and he is planning to interview Andrew Tate and, you know, Ben Shapiro, various political firebrands. Now, the thing I'm curious about from a journalist's point of view, where you you have done long form interviews with like Jordan Peterson and, and um, how do you feel about that format? Like, is it just indulgent or does it give the opportunity to see things that, you know, a more traditional journalist interview because there is the anticipation that you're going to challenge them on various points of controversy. Like, how much do you think love is important in an interview? Okay. <laughs> That's the question. Okay, so challenging someone, that tends to get you a lot of journalistic cred, right? But uh, it doesn't tend to make for a better interview, right? The, the best interviews are when you create space for people to open up and to share, right? And so you want to use some subtlety when you start challenging people, right? You don't want to make sounding tough your, your top priority. It's one thing to do something because it's going to make you feel good or it's going to make you look good in front of your journalistic pals. But the most important question is, will it do good? Will it create a better interview? Right? If you start stating your opinion while you're conducting an interview, your interview subject is going to shut down and they're not going to give you a good interview. Right? Interviewing has a protocol, just like a plane starting up and taking off. There's a protocol. When it comes to landing a plane, there's, there's a protocol. And when it comes to performing surgery, there's a protocol. But there are simply protocols for interviewing and you know, including moralistic statements or making, you know, opinionated statements in your interviewing is just going to turn your interview subject right off. Are you increasing love with your interviews? Uh, what, what do you think? I actually, one of the little clips we've got in the thing we call the built top is, oh no, maybe it's in the idea that it is that kind of, this podcast is seven hours. For some, that's too long. For some, that's too short. For <laughs> others, it's just right. And it's just like, I think it's one of those really interesting examples that, to the Radio 4 mainstream BBC audience, they'll be like, seven hours on a podcast? Of course that's too long. But, you know, that's, that to, to a lot of people it is, it turns out too short. I think it's, um, I think a lot of the story has to do with podcasts, actually. And I do say at one point during the series, you know, yes, everybody in this series has a podcast because they do a couple of things and they, they just, for first out, they really enable the parasocial relationships, right? You get them so much more of a sense of somebody when you're both hearing their voice and their intonation and their accent and their affect and all that stuff. And also the bits of your life that inevitably creep in when you're just, you know, like your love of nuts, for example, the nuts, kind of stuff yeah. that just, you just learn along the way. Um, so I don't think necessarily the kind of goal, the current age of gurus could happen. 
there's nothing inherently bad about a parasocial relationship when I was down and out and, and desperate and sick with chronic fatigue syndrome. Having a parasocial relationship with Dennis Brady was very important to me. So for some people, the, the parasocial relationship is about the only relationship that they have going on in their life. So it's better to have parasocial relationships than no relationships at all. But of course, as with everything else, the parasocial relationship comes with downsides. You shouldn't be obviously prioritizing the parasocial relationship over real in-person relationships. How representative of U.S. journalism is the New Yorker? It is an elite strand of U.S. journalism, but generally speaking, you know, American journalists at the, the major news organizations are more rigorous with their fact-checking and with their attempts towards objectivity than English journalists. Chat says, I've noticed a sharp decline in the quality and wit of New Yorker cartoons over the years. I haven't kept pace, but it wouldn't, wouldn't surprise me. Yes, the, the publication never been a particularly compelling one, though it occasionally publishes something important. Uh, but I, I would suspect that, yes, the, the New Yorker has become increasingly politically correct and therefore less interesting. And with that podcast, and neither could it happen in the sense that the charisma is often conveyed interpersonally. You want to see them being charismatic people um, or indeed at the, at the listener. And also just the sheer amount of time that you're spending with these people. You know, some of these, if you listen to all of Lex's content, most people don't spend, if they've got a job and a family, they don't spend that much time with their friends. You know, you could have had people that are like your best man at your wedding and you wouldn't spend as much time with them as you spend with Lex Friedman telling you about whatever it is that he's got to tell you about. And so I think all of those things are actually changed in the last 10 years and they probably do account for a large amount of the picture that we're looking at now. But um, I don't mind, I don't mind a, a long form interview. The thing is, I, I object to in the case of Andrew Tate, and we talked about Andrew Tate and whether or not to cover him in the series. I don't think he is interesting or insightful enough to merit that long an interview, right? I think if you interview Ben Shapiro and he tells you about setting up the Daily Wire, what it's like... Okay, I don't find Andrew Tate particularly interesting if he so happened to be available for an interview. I guess I would interview him, but I have no inherent, no compelling desire to interview either Andrew Tate or, or Ben Shapiro. Neither of them strike me as compelling personalities. I, I'm not driven to find out what they think about anything at all. I'd rather interview some academic. It's like to work in the conservative ecosystem, how he's built this incredible brand. You know, what it's like being a Jewish person in that space when so many people are anti-Semites and a huge amount of death threats. There's lots of things I would really like to peer. I don't know whether or not Ben Shapiro would be honest about those things, but he is a smart and interesting. Uh, Dennis Prager talks about he's almost never receives anti-Semitic mail. Uh, I suspect that uh, Ben Shapiro, well, no, Ben conducts himself in a much more confrontational and nasty way than, than Dennis Prager does. So it makes sense to me that uh, Ben Shapiro would get a lot more anti-Semitic reactions than uh, Dennis Prager. Interesting guy who's done things that I don't agree with, but I think there's a lot there. Andrew Tate is, as I think you've said many... Really? Uh, what, what's so interesting with uh, Ben Shapiro? It's just, it's just uh, you know, low-level uh, analysis, the, the most conservative perspectives possible on all sorts of topics that you know, Ben doesn't know much about times before a kind of you know grifting misogynist with a fake university who you know i it stands in front of these supercars you don't know if he's just hired them for the day he, like how much of the financials are actually even true it's impossible to, to know any of that stuff and he doesn't really have any great insight into the world beyond bitches need a smack and like, i just don't know what you're going to get over seven hours of that like it's not like you know these peterson's views on gender which by the way i think are often quite loopy like uh, you know are based on having read some stuff and thought about some stuff and some bad readings of evolutionary psychology that you could then unpack but I just don't see what's, 
I, I mean, if he does it, yeah. it'll be fascinating because I think Lex Friedman is just going to like get about 45 minutes in and then be like, right, so bitches, eh? What, what do they need? Oh, okay, great. But like, what, 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 what content is he going to, is he going to fill in that time? Yeah, it's a bit like, I mean, he's so much more toxic, so it's, it feels unfair to make this comparison, but it's like Paris Hilton, like, you know, just famous for being famous. I don't know what I'd ask her either. Um, but yeah, like you said, even with these gurus that are terribly, terribly wrong, at least, at least they're interesting in some ways. They've got something to talk about. Yeah. So yeah, Lex, but I, uh, you know, maybe he's got a massive, maybe we're all being very rude and he's got an enormous intellectual hinterland and he's going to be like, well, actually, I feel this is all grounded in Hegelianism and we're going to go, Oh. Oh, I see. Mm. Thank you, Andrew. Great, great that, thoughts. But it, it, it does tell us something I think about Lex's editorial decisions because I feel like, am I being unfair? But it seems to me like he wants to interview whoever is famous at the moment. Whoever's well, you know, he coverage. follows two people on Twitter. Have you seen this? This is one of my favorite things in the world. He follows two people on Twitter, Vladimir Zelensky, obviously from Ukraine, and, and like the Russian official government account. It's just like, all right, so those are your two interview targets then, are you? Like you're doing the classic bad journalism thing of like sucking up to the person who you want to get access to. But it's just like, but also I like the way that you've just taken both sides there. Maybe you are the person to broker the peace agreement we've all been hoping for in 2023. It's just, it's just he like, who, he is. Who's, who's spicy? Like your, your, your kind of decision about who to interview should go beyond who's spicy. And actually I did have this conversation in the podcast with Leah Heilpern, who's a crypto guru. She's Jewish herself. I was like, would you interview Kanye West now? And she said, yeah, absolutely. And I was like, but he's just in his full blown bipolar manic phase anti-Semitism. Like what is, and I said this to Lex on Twitter, like, what is there left to get out of him? He's going to come on and say he loves Hitler. Like you just, that's it. That's what he does now. And I said, what about Richard Spencer? And she's like, yeah, I didn't do a neo-Nazi. And I'm just like, but why? But why? And I just, it's just a fundamentally just a clash of ideologies where she just wants to talk to someone because they're interesting and spicy. And I just, apart from the ethics of it, I'm just not sure what, I know what neo-Nazis think. There are quite a lot of history books that really outline a lot of that ideology. You know, like go away and read, you know, a few books. Wait, wait, don't we know what feminists think? Don't we know what capitalists think? Don't we know what Marxists think? So this kind of reductionism that, oh, as someone who you can possibly ascribe a label of neo-Nazi to, therefore you can just totally dismiss their humanity. There's just nothing interesting about them. Uh, she she thinks that she already knows what a neo-Nazi thinks. Well, could you say that about any ideologue? Oh, I already know what a rabbi thinks. I already know what a priest thinks. I already know what a plumber thinks. I already know what a National Football League player thinks. You know, why bother interviewing them? But this kind of attitude, you just completely lack curiosity you're going to be sucking at trying to interview anyone. You can read Lex's favourite book about the boys in the rise and fall of the third right. Like, like, oh, but, you know, say what you want about the Nazis, at least they wrote stuff down about what they didn't hide it. Like, we we're all very aware of it. Um, so I just, I don't understand that kind of content brain, I guess. Yeah, that's, the, the content brain is a good term for it. And I, I, I think the equations that, like, people are making about things getting attention and that therefore or that like just finding out more about what people want to say like there's this notion that if you spend a lot of time with somebody and you talk to them you'll you'll break through their shell right like but in some cases first of all there aren't very deep layers like the anti okay that's true sometimes there aren't deep layers but uh often people will surprise you that they will be interesting and the rejoinder to Chris Cavador here is that uh, are you afraid that your ideas can't compete in an opiate marketplace? That uh, you have to rule out certain ideas as just being out of balance. You can't have any sort of interaction with them. We need to close down the free market of ideas and we need to you know, restrict things within the Overton window because my ideas on their own can't compete in the marketplace. I mean, either you 
subscriber to the zombie bite theory of information that if people you know hear from a neo-nazi that they'll you know get bitten by the the zombie and uh, become neo-nazis semitism is fundamentally part of the person's character like that's that's the stuff that they're interested in like nick Fuente is me anti-semitism isn't necessarily a part of someone's character anti-Semitism or anti-black attitudes or anti-Christian attitudes or anti-white attitudes, anti-Japanese attitudes are almost always situation dependent, right? They're not just written into someone's DNA, right? Uh, Kanye West didn't come out with his negative comments about Jews out of the vacuum, right? He, I, I would expect, has had substantial number of interactions with Jews. The Jews have played an important role in his life and he is reacting to something real even if his reactions are self-destructive and antisocial so negative attitudes towards certain groups usually derive from negative experiences with those groups or reading about those groups in a way that kind of fills a missing hole in your soul or fills a missing hole in your worldview if you spend a week with him, you'll find out that he also likes ice cream. And he, if you spend a week with Nick Fuentes, you'll find out a lot more than he also likes ice cream, right? This this desire to just reduce Nick Fuentes to an anti-Semite or to a Holocaust denier or white nationalist, it's it's reductive. It's essentialism that oh, you found this one quality, this you know one anti-social thing that he said, and therefore that sums up the whole guy. I mean, I'm not fascinated by, by Nick Fuentes, but he's a, he's a you know, smart, glib, charismatic, you know, moderately interesting guy. You'd find out a lot more if you spend a week with him than that he likes ice cream. You know, has quite a penchant for cooking Thai curry or whatever, but I don't care because the thing I care about with Nick Fuentes is that he's a anti-Semitic, like neo-fascist, right? That's why I don't like him. And... Oh, so if you don't like him, therefore people shouldn't interview him. Uh, is is anti-Semitic really the, the most important, powerful, defining quality of, of Nick Fuentes? I think he just has fairly typical pre-World War II Christian views on Jews. Uh, my father had uh, pretty similar views about Jews to uh, Nick Fuentes, along with tens of millions of other Christians. And I'm not a fan of Nick Fuentes. I'm not a fan of Nick Fuentes' views on Jews. I just don't think anti-Semite, Holocaust denier, white nationalist are the most accurate terms for him, right? He he is unlike almost any other quote-unquote Holocaust denier that we've ever seen or heard from. He he's not uh, you know like other anti-Semites and uh, white nationalists. He's a whole different creature. I don't think those terms are fair to him. And that's why he's a concerning figure. And it it. It does mean this. The reason that you find him a concerning figure is that a lot of people are going to listen to Nick and agree with Nick and be energized by Nick and find a social circle in alignment with Nick and they are going to organize around that. And it's a direction that you don't want society to go in. You don't want society to be more tribalistic and nationalistic and Christian nationalist in particular. Right? So why don't you say what you really object to with Nick Fuentes? elevation of the like getting to the real person behind the hateful ideology like 
it's it's not invaluable. Louis Farouk did it very does it very well. People who profile terrible people think, do it. No, I think that Louis Theroux neo Nazi program, I think it was a complete bust. And I love you know Louis I, I don't think Louis Theroux does it very well. It, it's you know, I'm superior to you, you know, I'm gonna talk down to you, I'm gonna call you a bunch of names and I'm gonna edit things in a way that's gonna make you look bad. Louis Theroux. Uh you know, I just think, you know, his his Savile programs were brilliant. His, you know, his, his Paul Daniels, his Christian, like people who were kind of cult figures, he did really well. And his stuff inside prisons, incredibly good, like places that you just are kind of weird, but you want to go to. But his neo-Nazi program not, failed for two reasons to me. One was, as you say, that sometimes the shell is literally all there is and you don't penetrate behind the shell to like the cuddly guy who just, you know, his mother smacked him once and that's why he became an ethnic nationalist. Yeah, that's what happens when you call people names, right? When you go in and, and you choose the most confrontational approach possible, such as what uh, Louis Theroux did with Beardson. Like, why were you throwing up uh, Nazi salutes? Right? Not not a necessarily a great way to start an interview to get someone to open up. So Louis Theroux is very fond of you know, flinging epithets at his interview subjects, and then they tend to react defensively and with hostility. Oh, shocking! Maybe there are more effective ways to talk to people. And the second thing is that they turned it back on him and they turned him into a spectacle and started live streaming him walking around. And like, that's very uncomfortable. Oh, uh, you know the one you I mean? mean? Oh, that's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable when the camera is turned back on you. So you should be exempt from that level of scrutiny. Why? Why do you get to put the scrutiny on other people? But it's an abomination. It's a horror. It's awful if they put that level of scrutiny on you. Why? The the recent to, one with um, Baked Alaska and that Baked yeah Alaska. I, I was think, I was thinking of the um like the the previous one where he was standing in the garage and the people started asking him if he was Jewish oh with Eugene you, Terblanche that one yeah yeah like the the kind of classic <laughs> classic Louis for but the the more recent one I agree there was a like there was an element that at least they were trying to use him for content as well and um, and like that that seemed a harder thing to navigate. But the but it, but in any case, like I still think he did it in a much more responsible way. Ah, that's a harder thing to navigate when when other people use your tools against you, where you don't have complete dominance of the means of cultural production. I mean, what you're seeing here is a rebellion against giving up anything of the liberal left control of the means of cultural production. When when people on the right try to you know, seize back means of cultural production the left here doesn't like it very much and i'm willing to challenge people and make uncomfortableness than is normal with the like the more lexman lex friedman side of the pool um when it comes to indulgent interviews so yeah it's i i guess we're probably there isn't that much <laughs> where we disagree that like you you should include some pushback if you want to interview neo-nazis it's a very controversial transition to stick out um but well no i think you guys are talking about something a bit more general which is that um and robert wright who we've got a lot of time for actually has like formalized this concept and he calls it cognitive empathy you have to practice cognitive empathy and understand you know where these distasteful characters who might be your opponents and might be doing that things that you think are bad understand where they're coming from and understand um what motivates them and he believes that um so you know western policy with respect to ukraine and putin is, is failing at practicing that standpoint taking. And um, yeah, I don't know. I think it's probably an interesting question, but for me, I just, 
I think he's wrong. I think in many ways it just doesn't really matter in a way. You know, like I understand that Vladimir Putin looks at the world differently. I understand that he sees the West as degenerate, that he sees himself as... Okay, so Matt Brown here from Decoding the Gurus thinks it's not important to have cognitive empathy for bad people, right? He essentially believes that there are good people and bad people, and it is pointless to have uh, cognitive empathy for, for bad people, but to have this analysis have a sure and objective foundation, he needs a transcendent source of morality, such as God, to rule who's good, who's bad, or what behavior is objectively good and what behavior is objectively evil. So what is the objective basis for his moral denunciations here? You know, I, you know, I'm sure my perceptions are not perfectly accurate, but I get a sense. But ultimately, you know, the people, these people that think very differently from ourselves, they're going to do the things they're going to do that they've taken the public positions or concrete actions that they've taken. And in the end, it doesn't really matter if they like ice cream or if, you know, they've got issues with their mother or something. Um, that's, that's not really the point, is it? I know what you mean. So these guys keep going back to the only point talking to people with whom I strongly disagree, who I regard as evil, is to find out if they like their mothers or if they like ice cream, right? You can learn a lot more than that. No, no matter what you say, you're going to be giving away who you are, right? Use what language you will. You can never say anything but what you are. And I always felt this about Jeremy Corbyn, the former Labour leader, who every time there was any kind of conflict would call for a peaceful resolution. And you had to be like, but other, sometimes you can only have a peaceful resolution if both sides want a peaceful resolution. If what Vladimir Putin wants is to take large bits of Ukrainian territory and you don't want him to do that, there is no compromise position. Like he's either going to have to win or lose. And I think that's, that is the drawback to that model is that if we, which is kind of- Right. These guys want to make the Russia versus Ukraine war a war of good and evil. Once you moralize a conflict, which is what they insist on doing, they want to moralize discussions with bad people, moralize them so that people you know, have fewer discussions with bad people, give them fewer opportunities to you know, present a dissident point of view. Right? When you moralize these conflicts, you make them far less likely of being resolved. You make negotiation and compromise much more difficult. And if you want to rule certain people out of discourse, then they are going to choose other means to let their opinions be heard. And they may not necessarily be legal or safe or nonviolent means. Right? If people are not allowed to speak, right? if people are not allowed access to the cultural means of production, they might uh, speak through criminal violence, and that might not be so necessary if you just allowed people to participate on a, how about an even playing field? about a free market of ideas. And also the next one. If only we could all talk it out, we could all come to a reasonable compromise. And some people are unreasonable and what they want is impossible. And it's a refusal to contemplate the fact that at that point you have to do things that are morally murky. You know, like... Oh, and which people are unreasonable? Oh, it's the baddies. It's the Vladimir Putin. It's the Nick Fuentes. These people are unreasonable. They're just wicked. They're just evil. They're just rotten people. And uh, just absolutely no point in having any cognitive empathy for them. Like a, like a yeah. stage of war, for example. Right? Yeah, so you, yeah. Obviously, it would be great if we could all just sit down and talk it out, but sometimes you can't. Some differences are irreconcilable. And, you know, I know it does. It always- yeah, some differences are irreconcilable. You can't just talk through everything. You can't just negotiate everything. But uh, this Ukraine and Russia war, completely unnecessary. If uh, we paid more attention to how Russia saw things, we would not be in this awful situation right now. So, yeah, discussion 
doesn't solve everything. Sometimes only violence solves certain problems. Always sounds good to practice universal love and to practice universal understanding and empathy. These are all very nice sounding words, but we're, we're against it. That's the guru's podcast. I was going to say, it's a great way to end this section of the podcast because Matt comes out against the concept of love. I'm against it. I'm broadly anti. Alan, I, I have a final gotcha question planned for you before you get to us. Um, <laughs> and I, uh, I was wondering because you have on occasion been the main character on, on Twitter. Um, and, and also in the media in, in general. Um, and you have famously been cancelled from such important things as, you know, a, the politi- the computer game Naughty Dogs <laughs> were making. So um, because of that experience, and that specific one, that's the one that I know really created. Um, does that make you feel sympathy to a greater extent for when people, a lot of the gurus are reeling against how they're treated in the mainstream and how they're presented, right? And they're very strong on the cancellation thing. And of course, I'm not saying you endorse all of the things that Jordan Peterson talks about cancellation, but when you've gone through like public criticism and, and cancellation campaigns, uh, personally, does it increase like the sympathy for their narrative? Uh, like in a way that like say me and Matt would not have sympathy for it. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's definitely a bias that I should, um, acknowledge because that feeling of being ostracized and the feeling of everybody just not even listening to what you're saying because they already know you're a bad person. And the feeling that you, um, people that you like and you think you would get on with have already heard this caricature version of you that's sort of stalking around it totally independent of you and therefore would be reluctant to speak to you. And the fact that professional opportunities are closed to you, that people, the sort of sense of, I said this to James Lindsay, actually, we didn't, we didn't go into the program, but I understand what it is to feel like to walk around with a kind of miasma around you. Um, this kind of feeling that there's something you might corrupt people just by touching them. It's a really horrible feeling. And it does give me an enormous amount of sympathy. I, what it, in my case, I hope it has turned me down is I feel like a bit like a reformed alcoholic in the sense that I feel like, you know, don't do what I, what I want to always say in those situations is don't lean into it. And this is the advice I always give to people who have been cancelled is like, this is a thing that happened to you. It's not who you are. And becoming professionally cancelled, as some people do, because it is quite lucrative and also out of a sense of wanting revenge and wanting the idea that one day eventually you'll triumph and everybody will admit that you were right all along. There is no justice in the world. That won't happen. You will burn yourself up in that quest for vengeance. That that is the kind of useful bit I can contribute. But that said, you know, and I know this is your academic specialty, Chris, like the, the bonding effect of going through that is extraordinary. Like, you know, people like Jesse Single and Katie Herzog, I know that I get on with them well because partly we've been all through the same trial by fire. And they also, I know I can trust them and they know they can trust me in some way because, again, we're all aligned. We've got the same set of enemies, really. Like that's a very powerful factor in kind of making you feel instantly a connection with people and feel that you can trust them. So, yeah, I definitely, I have a huge amount of sympathy. Um, and I also think it's one of those things where you should sort of think and reflect on your luck, that I was very lucky that I had lots of people around me. You know, one of my very good friends is Caroline Criado Perez, who went through a particularly horrible experience, getting incredibly badly trolled to the extent that she had people were jailed over the threats that they were sending her. And having seen her go through that and come out the other side of it and it not define her forever has been a very powerful experience. So that's my, that's my message to the cancelled. Like, it's horrible to be cancelled, but like, you're just someone who once got cancelled. You're not professional cancelly xyz okay good point to end on take care bye bye